Thank you, Mandy. Well, we are certainly living in some interesting days. Uh, there's no doubt that we are witnessing a great divide and hostility in our country. Uh, even this morning, I looked at uh, what gone on just over the night in Louisville, and uh, citizens just eating at Fourth uh, Street Live and 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 being um, assaulted and their property destroyed, and uh, all in the name of justice and what is right and wanting peace in the world. <clears throat> and this hostility really has been growing and brewing for some time. We've been watching it, uh, and, and, and I'm going to bring up at least a couple of movements that we've been seeing um, kind of come to the forefront over the last decade or more, and, uh, and, and how these things have kind of begun to come up in, uh, in what we're most recently seeing. And it begins with what we've, we saw with the sexual revolution and the, the, what we know is the LGBTQ community coming and demanding um, rights uh, for um, all, and including uh, marriage and, uh, and promoted by the state. We saw that come through. We, we've recently lived through, or continuing to do so, the, the Me Too movement, and then now what we know as the Black Lives Matter movement. In each of these movements, or revolutions, if you want to call it that, however you want to coin it, have taken our notice, haven't they? They've done so by storm. It's absolutely consumed every fabric of our society. Not only are these things demanding that we pay attention to their message, but everyone better take a side. Uh, you can quickly, quickly watch even stores and businesses wanting to make sure they are on the right side to protect their own product. And, and, and everyone knows where they stand. And really the message is being sent loud and clear. Either join the revolution or be deemed the problem. Be deemed um, a, a nuisance or a threat to society. And this moral and social revolution has put us Christians in a peculiar spot, hasn't it? Um, because it comes on the heels of, uh, of being peaceful, loving. And those are all the things that we want to be about. We, want, we don't want to be known as hateful people. We don't want to be known as bigots. We don't want to be known as unloving or oppressive even to anyone. And so though we disagree with the, the morality um, of the LGBTQ movement, we still believe those associated with this are made in the image of God. And we want to show honor, respect, dignity, love to all people, including them. We certainly stand against all forms of abuse. And we think of the, the Me Too movement, which has unveiled uh, a great a lot of abuse. And, and sadly, that's even occurred in the church. Horrific things. And, and we want to be those who expose the darkness. We don't want to be among those who hide it. We want to take these things seriously. We want to eradicate those things. We don't want to be um, um, havens for abuse, certainly in the church, but to any people, but even women. And then with Black Lives Matter, we, we definitely agree and believe that the lives of African Americans matter. We believe that even if we don't hold to the whole slogan. We believe those things. We believe that no one should 
should ever be treated unjustly or unfairly because of the color of their skin. And so in each of these movements or social causes, there is an element of moral truth that is propelled in them, that's latched onto them. Namely, that people matter and should not suffer unjustly. We of all people would say, absolutely, in every facet, people matter and no one should suffer unjustly. We, we, we should be against those things. And so if there wasn't a level of truthfulness in it, it, there wouldn't be any traction with some of these movements. There wouldn't be even temptation for us to, to link arms with them if there wasn't some level of truthfulness to them. And therefore, we as Christians, we, we, we agree. We, we of all people want to recognize that everyone is made in the image of God and everyone deserves to be treated right and shown dignity and honor and respect. However, the difficulty for us in this time and in looking at these movements is that the foundation upon which these things are built is fundamentally opposed to the truth of God's word and God's design for the world. And so it's not enough to show respect to those you disagree with in the LGBT community, but you must now celebrate it. And you must deny any biological basis for humanity, being our human sexuality of male and female. It's not enough to oppose sexual abuse, but you must be about eliminating any remnant of patriarchy in society. And this, this extends down to even our, our vocabulary. It, it's oppressive to call you female or women. Why? Because you see male, men. Even, even the word history is, is marked by oppression because it's his story. Even manholes can no longer be called manholes. It must be sewer lids, which I'm fine with that. That's fine. Um, but you get the point. It's not enough to decry abuse. You must now overturn God's design in the world. You must eliminate it. And then it comes to this movement known as Black Lives Matter. I think a lot of these things have, have, have morphed and, and fed into this, what is now the organization is what I'm, I'm talking about. And it's not enough to uphold the dignity of every person and show genuine concerns for the hurts and real hurts and, 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 and often associated with poverty. Hearing the real hurts of, of those among the African American community, that's not enough though. If you do not support the, the disruption of the nuclear family, affirm transgender identifications and seek to dismantle cisgender privilege. If you live in a world of male and female, you're privileged and you are oppressive, is what that means. And you need to be about the disruption of even the most fundamental distinctions between men and women. And like I said, all these movements seem to be uh, latching arms with a phrase that in and of itself should be celebrated. 
Black lives do matter, but has been hijacked. And it causes great confusion and actually calls for anyone to, uh, to abandon any sense of Christian ethic or biblical anthropology. What do I mean by it? biblical anthropology? What the Bible says defines a man and a woman, defines sexuality. The biblical way of viewing and living in the world is deemed oppressive and must be dismantled. And so it's no accident, I don't know if you've been keeping up, but even in Portland, the, what was, there was a book burning outside the, the federal building there, and you know what they were burning? They were burning Bibles. Why Bibles? Because everything that God's Word represents is deemed the problem. And so you can see, as we're looking at all these social issues going on, there is an undercurrent, an ideology under it, that we must be on guard against and know how to speak to in light of biblical truth. And so what I want you to see this morning is that the world's solutions to the ills of society cannot produce what they seek. They cannot. In fact, you're seeing the fruit of these ideologies taking full force. That doesn't mean that everybody who says Black Lives Matter is an anarchist. That doesn't mean that. But you are seeing where these ideas lead themselves. Where everyone who goes to a protest is, is that. No, but we are consistently seeing the overturn and destruction of every form of authority and structure that God has even put in the world. And what I want you to understand is that you cannot be in hostility with God and find peace in the world. It's, you can't do it. That's why you, you can't find fresh water out of saltwater spring. A bad, fruit, bad tree can't produce good fruit, as Jesus would say. And if you just look at the fruit of these works, you see total wickedness in the world. All on the banner of peace, hope, and love. Well, Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus and examines and really begins to explain where, where do we find true peace? Where, where do we find true hope in the world? How, how do you find true ethnic and even cultural harmony? How does that obtain? Though you might be tempted, and I'm sure many of us are, Tempted to believe that the real work, the boots-on-the-ground work of, of racial reconciliation, relief for the poor, justice for the oppressed, is found in joining these movements. That's what the world's going to tell you. That's where the work's done, not what you're doing. You're part of the problem. You want to really be about problem-solving? Come join us in overturning these structures. And you're going to be tempted. Every force and current of society is going to be pressuring you to do that. And what I want you to see is that the true hope, the true work of finding ethnic harmony, relief of the poor, justice for the oppressed, is actually found in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because here, there's actually real atonement for sins. There's forgiveness. And on the basis of that forgiveness, there is a tangible unity of the Spirit produced by God in everyone who believes. And you can see it. And you can see its fruit. And it's beautiful. 
and we are inviting people into it. So the hope and peace that the world longs for is only happening in the church. Doesn't mean that there isn't any hope and peace in, a, in maybe an earthly temporal sense outside the church, but where you further remove yourselves from the truth of God's word, the design of God's world, you can only have havoc and chaos. But the hope and peace of the world, or for the world, is happening here, happening in the church. And what's the church? Here's a definition of the church that I want to give to you. I don't have it up on the screen, probably should have, but the church is a new humanity made up of all peoples who through faith in Christ have been united together by the Spirit and reconciled to God. I'll repeat that. The church is a new humanity made up of all peoples through who through faith in Christ have been united together by the Spirit and reconciled to God. So this morning, what I want you to see is that the gospel produces this people, this new humanity, this new community, where all the things that even us as all image bearers are longing for peace, hope, and love in the world. We're, we're made for that. We want that. We want righteousness. We want dignity and respect for all peoples. We, we long for it, but that longing can only be satisfied in the church and the message of Jesus Christ. I want us to see this morning that the gospel of Jesus is the only hope of peace in this hostile world because it is through the gospel that every person can be made new, that we can be united together, and that we can be reconciled to God. And so when we consider the hostility in the world and understand it is fundamentally a sin problem, when you look at the, at the problems of the world, you need to understand that its most fundamental level is not, I mean, it's not structural, i.e. cisgender, all forms of authority. That, that's not fundamentally the problem. And some of those things aren't a problem at all. It's fundamentally a problem with a sinful heart. It's fundamentally the disease that is in every single person. And when we realize this, we actually know the solution. And this is why Paul calls us to remember that in Christ all people are made new. You see this in, in verses 11 and 12. Paul calls the church in Ephesus, and you can see here, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by uh, hands. Remember that you were at one time. And he goes on to list several aspects of who you were. Now what I want you to hone in on and recognize is that, that Paul calls the church, in this case the Gentiles among the church in Ephesus, to remember the state that they were in before they came to know Jesus. And, and what he's, he's pitting kind of is you had a hostility between another people group, Jews. And you see this hostility even described by the ethnic identity markers which were given to them. The Jews would call Gentiles the uncircumcision or, or actually... A little bit more graphic would be the foreskins. You foreskinners, that might be what they, they called them. That was a, a term of derision. You would label somebody clearly by something on their skin. 
And they would look at them with disdain. And, and Paul begins to, to list and enumerate in verse 12 all, all five key areas that were to make Gentiles, foreskinners, disadvantaged compared to the Jew. And the first one is that you were separated from Messiah. Now, when we, we see about that, you're separated from Christ, we think of it unbeliever. You know, if you don't believe, you don't have Jesus. Well, that's true. But here what Paul is emphasizing is the ethnic reality. Jesus, the Messiah, is a, it comes from the Jews. The Messiah, salvation, is of the Jews. And that's, there's a truthfulness to that. He says, well, you're not of the Jews. So you're separated. You're cut off. You don't have Messiah. That was kind of the things to say, pointing their finger at them. Secondly, you're alienated from the commonwealth, the society, the community of Israel. Yeah, you can't be a part of this. Third, you're strangers to the covenants of promise. God didn't make any promises to you. He made promises to us, to Abraham and to his offspring. And guess what Abraham's offspring has to do? They must be circumcised, you foreskinner. You see how that might continually begin to cause problems. Fourthly, you have no hope then. You're hopeless. Do you ever hear people say you're, you know, ever, you hear people call people worthless? You're hopeless. You're a Gentile. And then fifthly, you're without God in the world. You don't know God. You can just see the self-righteousness building in that term of derision skin. This is a big deal. Because essentially, if you weren't willing, under the old era, before Christ, if you weren't willing to become Jewish through circumcision, adhering to the food laws, and observing the Sabbath, there was no hope for you. No hope of salvation. In other words, you had to abandon your ethnic identity, your cultural heritage, and conform your entire life to the whole law code of Israel. You had to become a Jew in every sense of the world, as, as far as you possibly could do. This was called becoming a proselyte in the Old Testament. And here's the irony of it. Israel would use God's law to, to, to divide and separate and, 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 and look upon the rest of the nations with derision and, and, um, and, and negativity. But here's the reality is they didn't live up to the law either. Instead of seeing their own sinfulness in light of it, they, 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 they twisted it. Their sin twisted it and made them self-righteous. They were hostile to other people. But however, Paul says something about these things. Look, he says, you were called these things by, verse 11, the circumcision which is made in flesh by hands. That phrase, made with hands, that idea Every time it's brought up in the, in the scriptures, it's usually, well, it's not every, it is every time brought up and associated with idolatry, idols made with hands. The Jews had made their external rites of circumcision, in this case, an idol. It was an external means. It was their God, but yet their irony is, is that they themselves didn't know God. Their hearts had not been changed. And Paul addresses that. And though Israel was privileged among all peoples, there, there's no doubt about it. There are privileged people. Israel was one of them. 
But the sad reality was that they themselves had not laid hold of the righteousness of God. But in verse 13, everything changes. Paul shows that all this, this division, and even the way he's um, kind of structured this argument is, is very Jewish-centric. There's the Jews and then there's everybody else. Well, we're everybody else, and then there's lots of nations in it, but it didn't matter to that. You're either a Jew or you're not. But, but Paul points out in verse 13, but now in Christ, but now in Christ, everything's changed. These are some of the most beautiful and rich words in all the Bible. And they're everywhere. They're littered throughout the scriptures. And, and so often I fear that we, we just graze over them. Yep, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. But they're the, probably the most significant words in the scriptures. Because they have eternal significance for our lives. See, for everyone outside of Christ, they're far from God. Everyone. Regardless of their ethnicity, their cultural heritage, heritage, their sex, their, their age, their economic status. If you aren't in Christ, you're far from God. <coughs> but for everyone in Christ, they have been brought near. Regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of your cultural heritage, your sex, your age, your economic status. How can that be? Because the fundamental problem shared by all people isn't what's on the outside, it's what's on the inside. And in Christ, he redeems us. You, you see that. But in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near how? By the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ changed everything. Washed you, clothed you. So this whole passage is actually about the transformation that occurs in individual lives, which then has a visual effect with other people. It changes. So it's not just, okay, I've got the gospel and it does nothing. No, no, the gospel flushes itself and has transformation, not only in your life, but in the life of everyone else who's been transformed. This whole passage is about the transformation and hope and power that happens in Christ. Have you ever maybe looked at all those in Christ statements? And maybe that'd be a, a good homework assignment today. Especially if you've got like the Bible on your phone, you can usually just search in Christ and look at just how many come across. I did that and here's, here's just a sampling of the great privileges and blessings that have come to us in Christ. See, it's in Christ that we have redemption through his shed blood on the cross. It's in Christ that we have the forgiveness of all of our trespasses and sins. It's in Christ that God bestows every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's in Christ that we receive the riches of God's grace. It's in Christ whereby God lavishes upon us all wisdom and insight into his sovereign purposes. It's in Christ that God makes us alive and able to live for him. It's in Christ that we have been set free from the law which brings us condemnation. It's in Christ that the love of God has been secured for us. It's in Christ that we have been washed and made holy before God. It's in Christ that we are given eyes to see Christ's glory revealed in the pages of Scripture. 
It's in Christ that we are made new creations whereby the glorious truth that all old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. It's in Christ we were given freedom to walk in love, no longer enslaved by the passions of our flesh. It's in Christ whereby we have been justified, declared righteous, and our sins are not held against us. It's in Christ that we were adopted as children of God and co-heirs with Christ. It is in Christ that we have access to the Father to bring our cares and concerns to him. It is in Christ that God supplies our every need according to his glorious riches. And it's in Christ the virtues of faith, hope, and love abound. That's just a sampling of what happens in Christ. And here's where I want to challenge you. I see a lot of us battling with political ideology. We want to conflict with people and fight over the things that are going on and make political battles, political arguments. And I want you to say they're weak. They got nothing. Because at the end of the day, they cannot change the human heart. They cannot do it. It's only in Christ that these things can take place. So whether it's Republican or Democrat, they got nothing for you. And yet, so often we make them the barrier. We lead out with that. And we destroy and we divide and there's a great hostility. Because we would rather die for our party than die to ourselves. I'm not saying those things don't have a purpose and a place. But what I want you to see and what I want for us so much is, yes, engage these ideas, but engage them with power. Engage them with the scriptures. Don't fight for pro-life with political square guns. Bring the image of God to bear on people. Don't turn a blind eye to people who are suffering in poverty because it doesn't fit your platform. Who cares? We love people because they're made in the image of God. And guess what? We can tell people who don't think that they're they're male or female anymore. We know more about them and can love them better than they can love themselves. Because we have the truth. And it should change how we interact with people. And so often we are dying on these hills. It changes nobody's lives. It just creates more hostility. I would far rather someone come to faith in Christ and I won them to my political ideology even though I think I'm right. I'll let the Lord sort that out. And it'll change how we interact. Those things weren't in the notes. Point two. In Christ, all people are united together. This is what happens if you're in Christ. What happens when a person becomes a genuine believer? In Christ. What what actually happens? Christ becomes our peace. You see that in verse 14? Christ becomes our peace. Who 
who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Christ brings peace in our lives. This is primarily, he's talking about peace with one another, but this is a byproduct of our peace with God now. We're no longer at enmity with him. We're no longer enemies of God. And so that fleshes itself out in a tangible way. And so Christ did this work on the cross. This is the power of the cross. The work of the cross, Jesus put an end to an old era where we now, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 16, no longer regard anyone according to the flesh. That's what we often all do, right? We categorize everybody, right? Well, they're a liberal, they're a conservative. They're a boomer, they're a millennial. You know, we got all these terms that we Love to just hoard. And what do they do? They create conflict. We just zingers all the time. Christ destroyed that on the cross. And here he's talking particularly about the law. Because the law was written on stone tablets. You can just kind of even picture the coldness, the externality of the law, at least as it's given um, it's given on tablets, and, and it, it merely reveals the righteousness and holiness of God. But guess what? The law could not supply that righteousness and holiness to people. It was outside of them. And so in Israel's case, the law became a measurement to condemn the nations and not bring contrition to their own hearts. And for the nations, they looked at the, at the law, okay, Basically, I have to abandon who I am to become a Jew. And it was an impossible measurement to me. But in the cross, Christ put an end to the law. And he ushers in a new era, a new humanity, a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Whereby the law would not be on the outside of our hearts, on stone tablets, but it would be written on our hearts. And because it's written on our hearts, now we love God and we can love our neighbor. You see that? This is what Christ did, and it was like destroying the, the, the dividing wall of hostility. And he particularly talks about the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. And in the cross, he creates in himself, verse 15, one new man in the place of the two, so making peace. Now here's the beautiful thing. No longer is access to God, the Father, partitioned out by Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you're all one in Christ. But here's what is even more beautiful about that. While we're all one, given equal standing, equal access before God, recipients of his promises, this unity does not eclipse, it does not wash out all the ethnic and various differences and backgrounds in us. It doesn't wipe us out. It means that Jews and Gentiles, men and women, poor people and rich people alike are accepted before God. Oneness doesn't mean sameness. And that's what the world wants. Sameness. That's why it's going down to the fundamental 
biological fabric of who a person is in the family, which just destroy it all. Because if we can do that, then everybody can have everything. If we kill the baby in the mother's womb, the mother doesn't have to worry about being a mother because fathers don't. You see? Sameness. Only way to get oneness is sameness. Well, that's not the message of the Bible. This is the vision of John, isn't it? In Revelation chapter 7, he says, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages standing before the throne. What a beautiful picture. Brothers and sisters, this is the place. Oak Park Baptist Church is an expression of what's going on in heaven. This is the place where all people can come to Jesus no matter who they are. This is the place. And so in that sense, as the old hymn writer says, come as you are. You don't have to abandon your heritage. You don't have to attain a certain economic status. You don't have to obtain a certain level of education or be a part of a particular political party. No, you can come to Jesus. In Christ, those externals that divide have been abolished. Those things that, that the world says have meaning. Paul, borrowing kind of where the conflict is to the Galatians, he says, so neither circumcision or uncircumcision matter, but only a new creation. That's what he's getting at. In Christ, you're a new creation. The church is a new humanity. So for this reason, what do we do? We preach pre peace, right? We preach this message, verse 17. And he came, meaning Jesus, and preached peace to you who are far off. Who's that? Well, in the language, that's the Gentiles. But notice, and preached peace to you who were near. Who is that? The Jews. The same message goes to both people. Doesn't change. The same peace is extended And so when we sin, having received this peace, received this message, when we sin or offend one another, we know how to forgive one another just as God in Christ forgave us, don't we? It transforms our lives. Look at chapter 4, verse 32. This is the application portion of Philippians, but, or I mean Ephesians, but he says this, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So when there's conflict in the church and you are at odds with somebody, here's where the gospel comes in play. You now understand that, that Jesus didn't say, hey, you got to get up to me before I love you. No, I'm going to love you and, and, and love covers a multitude of sins. Oh, this is how Jesus loved me. Actually, I can love someone the same. I don't have to demand that you become exactly like me, as right as I think I am about everything, right? We're all opinionated. Don't have to do that. And here's what's beautiful, beautiful picture of God's grace that's right here in this room. We get to see every Sunday. And one of the things that encourages me so much is when I hear people who visit sometimes for the first time, and, and often one of the things that is said about Oak Park is, wow, there, there's all sorts of different ages here. One of the things that I think strikingly comes out, because I think you either go to some churches, it's all young. You go to other churches, it's all old. It's the same stuff. 
We're dividing based on preferences and externals. And, hey, no, we're going to sing these songs because that's what the young people like. No, we're going to sing these songs because that's what the old people like. And what do we have? We have division. Now, I'm not saying that somehow that there is, you know, we represent everything perfectly here. But while we aren't what we one day will be, we are people from various ages, backgrounds, incomes, ethnicities, political persuasions. And by and large, I think we generally love each other. Got some crazy aunts and uncles, but that's okay. What is that? That's the power of the gospel in your life, in my life. Because no other reason would we hang out, right? No other reason would we probably hang out. Unless you're a UK fan or something like that, right? Jim? No. Okay. How does Christ do this in us? We see in verse 16, what does he do? That he might reconcile us both. He does a reconciling work, both of us, in us, to God. In one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. See that he reconciled us both to God. That becomes the center point through the cross. And therefore, this is our third point. In Christ, all peoples are reconciled to God. And this is the fundamental basis that brings the horizontal relationships. There's a, a, a making us right vertically before God, and when that is set in place, then rightfully our relationships begin to come in place. And that's actually how we continually preach the gospel to ourselves in every conflict, and why we can't hold bitterness towards one another when we're wronged by one another, is because we realize, oh my word, the Lord doesn't hold this against me, how can I do that to them? But that's the basis by which you can't hold forgiveness. But if you flip it around, you, you magically can never get there, right? If you don't know the forgiveness that's brought in reconciliation from God to you, then you won't know how to give it to others. To be reconciled is to bring peace between two parties who are at one time hostile or at enmity with one another. And we see here that the harmony among one another comes when one is made right with God. You must be right with God before you can be truly right with your fellow brother or sister. This is why Paul concludes in verse 19, Therefore you who are, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Because you've been reconciled to God, now you're no longer aliens and strangers with the rest of the people of God. And this is important. Because what I want you to see here is that God did this for the Gentiles without making the Gentiles become Jews. And guess what? He did this without making the Jews Gentiles. They got to still be Jewish and Gentile. Which is why when, Luke, when John looks at that vision, he can see people of every nation, tribe, tongue, and language. There's a still a beauty and diversity in all that has taken place around the cross. And continuing the metaphor of a house, he says the foundation of this house is what? Verse 20. We're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Jesus is the basis of our unity. As he is presented to us in the apostles and prophets in the scriptures. That is the basis by which we continually, what? Are growing. The whole structure is joined together on that foundation. And so you got the picture of a glorious bricks that are different colors and, and backgrounds and, and all sorts of trophies of God's grace that tell a story. And they are built together to make this glorious dwelling place of God. 
Where is the dividing line? It's in Christ. But in Christ, wow, there's freedom. We sang it. In Christ, I'm free. I'm free indeed. That's what we're talking about. And we see in each here, we see actually even each person of the triune God involved. Verse 18. For through him, that's Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Father, Son, and Spirit are working together to bring reconciliation amongst all peoples, to create a new humanity who live in a new heavens and a new earth. Actually, they'll transform this earth. So you, you want to be where the action's at. It's in the church. But the power of transformation can occur and, and people genuinely love each other and there's genuine peace in the world. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God, right? Sons of God. This is why Paul says in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, walk in all humility. This brings so much humility, doesn't it? And gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. When we're transformed by the gospel, then transforms our relationships. And we rightly view people and love them. So this is why the real work of resol uh, 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 revolving, or resolving uh, hostility between people, the real work among resolving conflict between men and women, me too, black and white, black lives matter, rich and poor, Democrat and Republican, the real work happens day in and day out on Sunday morning in the life of the church. This is why, I know some of you are on live stream because of your vulnerabilities, but this isn't how you're made. You can't stay digital church forever because by God's grace, you weren't made to be alone because guess what? You'll never have conflict and you'll never be forced to apply the gospel to your life in this way to bring about reconciliation if you're only online for the rest of your life. You can't do it. But here's where the real work happens. Mom and dad, when you are raising your child to know God and love their siblings, you're teaching them how to live in the world. It happens when you learn to live with one another in the church, bearing one another's burdens, resolving conflict, letting love cover a multitude of sins that will no doubt happen to all of us. It comes when you see that new person who's alone. This is a little challenging right now with COVID, but you see that new person and you invite them to say, hey, come into my house for a meal, or we'd love for you to come to our community group, or hey, could I get your number? I'd love to take you out to lunch or, or get coffee. That is getting the work done. When you see an outsider and you bring them in and you share the love of Christ, it happens when you, you love on people and you help someone get a job or your workplace, or you help them earn their license. I've seen that happen in our church numerous times. Or you've helped someone develop a budget so they can get their, their finances in order and they can live a healthier life and they understand how to manage the, the resources they've been given. Or you take time to disciple someone in the fundamentals of the faith. That's where the real work of reconciliation happens. Not going to some protest just produces hostility. 
This is why Paul says at the end of chapter 3, now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all we could ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, what a glorious truth. And Lord, I pray that we would see that you would do far more than we could ever think that we could do. We could do far more with the power of the gospel to pour into people's lives, to help them taste and see that you are good and bring them into this glorious new humanity known as the church. Or may we die to ourselves so that we may bring all people to you, no matter who they are, what they've done, where they've been. And they could be told that in Christ they can be made new, that in Christ they can be united to a community, and in Christ they can be reconciled to you, Father. Lord, that's what we want. We pray that you would use us in that way. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.